chapter 12. So basically, if you get to Hosea 12, you'll be fine. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the winds and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for God. A merchant in, those, in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there was iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. If Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the fields. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife And for a wife, he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he guarded, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I have for the last several years uh, part of Something we do at Presbytery is when men come into churches, they have to go through the credentials committee. And I, for years, many years now, have graded the history exam. And the first question on our history exam is always this, our church history exam. Why study church history? And the answer has several parts. Uh, so we don't repeat the same errors so that we can learn from those who have already come before us. So we can answer questions that have, or answer questions that may have already been answered by history before us so that we can be encouraged by this great cloud of witness that comes before us. And I believe that this question is important for us on many levels. We need to be reminded of our immediate history, our own history. How has God protected us? How has he kept us? How has he called us to himself? We need to be reminded of our near past. How has God worked in us maybe even as a denomination or as a country or through family and friends. We need to be reminded of our distant past. How has God worked out throughout the whole history of the church, understanding that he is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The problem with Israel as we come to Hosea is they needed a history lesson. They had forgotten their history, their National, national, excuse me, history, the way they were called out of Egypt, the way they were blessed by God and their fathers, even when they sinned. 
And Hosea today is going to remind them of that history. He's going to remind them of the sins of their fathers. He'll remind them that even as their father sinned, God made provision for repentance and restoration. And so as we come to our text this morning, we'll see three things. The deceit of Ephraim, the deceit of Jacob, and the iniquity of Israel. The deceit of Ephraim, the deceit of Jacob, and the iniquity of Israel. Ephraim's deceit is a theme that really has gone throughout the whole of the book of Hosea. And as we're coming to an end here, we have 12 today, 13 next week, and then we end 14 will be the first sermon of the new year, I suppose. And we end. But throughout the whole of Hosea, there's been this charge against the nation. They have been deceitful in their dealings with Yahweh, with the God of their fathers. And he's going to use by analogy, the example of Jacob to show their deceitfulness. Jacob, whose name means he grasped the heel or supplanter. If you know the story of Jacob, Jacob on the way out of the womb, he's twins with his brother Esau. He wanted to be the firstborn, so he's literally grabbing on to, to Esau's heel as he's coming out. He wanted to supplant him. And that's why his, where his name comes from, supplanter. And he would go on to deceive his father, receive the blessing, the birthright blessing that was, should have been Esau's. And this is the same deceit with, with, with which Israel engaged the nations. It's all that Yahweh regards as false. It says at the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 12, Ephraim feeds on the wind. Hosea used a similar analogy earlier. It said they reap the wind. Something that cannot be controlled. It cannot be guided. It is unwieldy and a powerful source. He says, you feed on the wind. You, you are, in essence, it's, it's, there's some mo- modern analogies we can use. Uh, you're playing with fire. You've got the tiger by the tail, right? Both things that are not a good idea. I guarantee you, if you grab a tiger by the tail... Yeah, it's not going to end well. When you play with fire, there's a chance you get burned. And the same is true of what they're doing with the nations. He says, you're trying to feed on the wind. And you, you're trying to, to eat blessings from these nations and you cannot control it. You've engaged in covenant with Assyria. He says they make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried off to Egypt. And this is the second time Hosea has talked about covenants in in his book. And the first time was in the covenant with our God. But he says, now you're making a covenant with Assyria, a a political, financial, international relations. And you are foregoing the covenant that you had with God, established by his own hands. And the mark of this, says the oil will be carried off to Egypt. It's a sign of their relationship. Oil, which was a rich commodity that could be used for cooking or supplying light, your oil will be carried off to Egypt because you have made this arrangement with them. They have been deceitful. They have not trusted in God. They have trusted in themselves. And deceit, deceit is something that can easily creep into our own lives. 
we deceive others as well as ourselves. We claim that we're following after God, but all the while we're following after our idols or we're following after self. And we, we begin to make agreements and bargains with these idols. I will serve you anger as long as you prove that I'm right. I will serve you pride as long as you place me in power. I will serve you wealth as long as you make me comfortable. I will serve you lust as long as you give me pleasure. We make these arrangements. And in doing this, we turn our back on the covenant God that has entered into covenant with us to be our God and for us to be his people, to keep us and bless us as we faithfully follow him and we are deceitful as, as we can in one hand sing praises to God and in the other hand have these hidden secret covenants with other things, with sinful things. This is what Israel was doing. They were deceitful. So he tells them about Jacob. This is our second point, the deceit of Jacob. He says, let me, let me remind you of your history. And, and before we go any further, there's a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek thing going on here. It's not by accident he points to Jacob, Jacob who was deceiver, but also Jacob's whose name would become Israel, right? There's this connection between Jacob and the nation of Israel. They would bear his name as their national identity. So he comes and he tells them the story of Jacob. He says, just like Jacob, you are a deceiver. And I'm going to make my case against you, Israel, by telling you about this individual, Jacob. You are deceitful and lying, even as he is deceitful and lying. It is who you are corporately with your leaders. It's your national identity. And he uses several allusions from the life of Jacob to show us this. Now, and even a lot of the language, if you were to go look at the account of Genesis and Hosea are similar, but there are some differences. But first he talks about the birth. In the womb, you sought to supplant your brother. Later, he deceived him in, in his birthright and in his inheritance. Then he goes on and he talks about how he wrestled with an angel, where his name was changed to Israel. He struggled with men and God and prevailed. And in a similar manner, Israel is now contending with God in both what seems like strength and in deceitfulness. They think they, have a, they come from a position of strength, but in reality, all what they're doing is deceiving. They think they're doing well. They think like their father Jacob, they have strewn with men and God and have prevailed. But they've forgotten who their God is. He met God. Jacob met God at Bethel and there he spoke with, and there God spoke with us. The Lord God of hosts, they're reminded of his covenant name. The name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. 
He draws together Jacob and Moses, these past figures through this little section here. God spoke with us, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. This is who he is. And because he is, I am who I am. Verse 6, so you should, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Because here's the difference between Jacob, the father of Israel, and Israel, the nation. Jacob submitted to God, but Israel is not. They must come back to God to wait on him with anticipation. But we're left here and we're like, okay, I understand the story of Jacob. I may have even heard the story of Jacob. But what does that matter for me? What, what does that story matter for me today? And, I, and the reality is that the example of Jacob is still good for us today. He may be the father of Ephraim, but he is also our father as well. The father in the faith. And I think that we can identify with Jacob. We, like Jacob, often like to seek to supplant. We strive to get more at ourselves and it doesn't for ourselves, and it doesn't matter the cost. We don't mind stepping over others if it means that we can get for ourselves the thing that we want and the thing that we need. I think to a large degree, the, the church today is paying for some sins of the church over the last 100, 150 years. Something the church continues to do today. That we seek to put others down to make ourselves look good. We've made ourselves feel more holy by vilifying certain sins to the degree that it becomes okay to, to shame and to scorn, even at times to beat others who are in these sins that we judge as those are too far. We have sought to surplant. We have sought to put ourselves in a position of holiness on the backs of others. When we're called to show the love of Christ, instead we fail to see the image of God in those around us. We fail to treat them with the same love that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ. Our history must inform and shape us. That's just one example. There is any number of examples of ways in which we are deceitful and, and supplanters in our lives. When we seek our good, yes, over the good of others, but more importantly, over the glory of God. Israel's history must inform our history. And we would be hopeful here at this point as we see the deceit of Ephraim and the deceit of Israel, or Jacob, excuse me, that we would now hear this message of restoration. It doesn't come yet. It's coming. The great climax of Hosea is coming in chapter 14, but it doesn't come yet. Because Ephraim is still living in rebellion. As we begin verse 7, we see a merchant the merchant is Ephraim here, in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, I am, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find me in iniquity or sin. You see how Ephraim boasts? 
I'm wealthy. You can't, you can't find me in sin. And, it's, and Ephraim's arrogance and pride, it says here, he describes him, he has false balances. You know what a balance was used for? You, you think about well, almost the only place you left really seeing it today is in uh, Lady Justice or whatever her name is. You see the image of Lady Justice and she has the scales. And it's supposed to be that here, in here you find some sort of balance of justice, whatever. But, but the image of a balance in and of itself was just a matter of accounting for money. To make sure that the money that you were putting here was equal to the actual weight, there was a habit of skimming. So you, if you actually were dealing in gold and it was a gold piece, you might nick off a little piece of that gold, keep a little gold back for yourself, but it still looks like the coin, right? We need to make sure that we're balancing. And he says, you have false balance. You say that you're rich and that no one can find you in sin, but your scales are, they're cheated. They're, they're cheated in their waiting. You are living in sin. And in essence, we just got finished, I think it was the last week, the week before, talking about God as our father. He pulls the ultimate uh, father move, right? I brought you into this land and I can take you out of it, right? And that's what he says here. I brought you out of Egypt and I can bring you back to Egypt. I can bring you back into tents. As in the days of the appointed feast, you know all those feasts that you're remembering? They're remembering a time where Israel was wandering through the wilderness and they were in Egypt. And I will bring you back there because you are living in iniquity and sin against me. He says, "I, I spoke to the prophets, verse 10. I gave you prophets like Moses and like even Hosea now. I multiplied visions. I gave them parables. All to bring you back. He had a relationship with the people. One that long came before their entering into the land of Canaan. The covenant Lord who brought them out of Egypt. They have sinned against this God. And therefore they will come to nothing. He says there's iniquity in Gilead. They shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on furrows in the fields. He says you're like Jacob. When Jacob had been discovered in his deceitfulness, he fled to the the, the home of his mothers, to Aram, where he served for a wife. And it's interesting because Hosea doesn't complete the thought here. If you know the story of Jacob, and they surely would have known the story of Jacob, what happened to Jacob when he strove for a wife? He was deceived. (laughs) He ended up with two wives. Because his father, his father-in-law, his uncle, dealt falsely with him. You too will flee to a land. By the prophet, the Lord brought Israel out from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Verse 14, Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Israel of Hosea's day thought they were wealthy and innocent. 
but they will not remain in the land unless they return to Yahweh. The passage ends here today with a message of both truth, but also a a message of consequence. In essence, he says, Israel, Ephraim, you're not who you think you are. You're living a lie. And if you continue to live this way, your blood guilt will be upon you. It's a very somber conclusion as he develops his case against Israel. Their guilt, their iniquities will come back on them if they don't repent. They will be repaid for their disgraceful deeds. The message of hope is coming. The message of hope is something that we are talking about in the season. The hope of a savior. But this morning... Mark, as before he read, talked about this time of silence. And Israel, they felt that time of silence, didn't they? After they had gone through these prophets and they had rejected and rejected and rejected. And silence. If you don't repent, there will be a punishment for your sinfulness. You're going to go home this afternoon. You're going to make final preparations, wrapping presents, cooking of hams, preparing of turkeys. The families will come together. You'll give gifts. You'll exchange presents. You'll have a good time. You may tell stories. Maybe you'll tell stories of Christmas's past. You'll be reminded of your history. And maybe in that time, you'll take a moment and you'll And hopefully, you'll remember Christ. And you'll remember his history and what it means to you that he came. And he looked upon us, Israel, the people of God, those who would be the people of God. And he saw that there was a need, that they needed repentance. They needed Something that would satisfy the wrath of God. Because the answer here as we conclude chapter 12 is, Ephraim, Israel cannot do it on its own. They need repentance, but they cannot satisfy the wrath of God. They need something more. They needed a savior. They needed Jesus Christ. We, on this side of history, get to look back. We can look back to Hosea. We can look back to Jacob. But we can look back to a manger. Let this time of year, tonight, today, tomorrow, this coming week as you spend time with families, not be just a time of families, not just to be a time of presence. This morning I was talking to my son and I said, do you know what tomorrow is? And he said, yes, it's Christmas. I said, you know what happens? Why do we celebrate Christmas? He goes, presents. And I said, no, that's not why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus came, was born in a manger, and he died for his sins. He goes, I said, what do you think of that? He goes, that's cool, cool. It's cool, right? It's cool. It's it's of a great importance. And that's the mouth of a three-year-old, right? 
That's cool. Is, is the, the reality of the birth of Jesus something that is important to us? It can't just be a time where we're relaxing with family. It can be a time where we're renewed and refreshed in our faith. Where we can look upon our own transgressions, our own sinfulness, our own rebellion, our own deceitfulness. And turn from those to the God who loves us. Who sent his son to die for us. It is the invitation of the gospel to all who would hear. Come, you who are weary, you who are heavy laden. Come and I will give you rest. Stop striving. Stop grabbing at the heels of the riches of this world. And come and rest and trust in me. It's the wondrous hope of the gospel. It's the wondrous hope that we find in this table. For you who are in Christ Jesus, this is a symbol, a reminder, a a, a communicating of God's grace to you. Jesus' body broken, Jesus' blood poured out so that you could be reconciled, so that you could remember so that he would remember your iniquities no more. For when he looks upon you, he does not see your sin. He sees Jesus. The reason, as it were, for the season. And that's a kitschy saying we hear, and we may roll our eyes a little bit. I know I do at times, but it's true. It is Jesus. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, at times when we come and we read parts of the Old Testament, we're confronted just with the harshness of the language at time. But we, as we come, we are reminded that you are a holy God and we are a sinful people and your holiness does not abide sin. So would we come? Would we place and rest our trust in Jesus Christ, whom, whom in we find our guilt removed. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen. Please stand as you're